0: Welcome to the latest installment of Rounds Rant. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Anna Lemke, who is an American psychiatrist who is chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford University. She is also the author of Drug Dealer, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. Anna also recently appeared in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, and firstly, thanks a million for coming on the show, Anna, and how are you keeping today?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited to be speaking to folks in Dublin.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great thing about technology and especially during these odd, odd times. It's very good to get talking to people in all corners of the world. So like speaking of your work and obviously you've had quite an extensive journey and the many things you've studied over the years, but like you studied in Yale, you completed your medical studies in Stanford University. Like, how did you get interested in studying medicine, and eventually focusing on psychiatry and addiction in your later years? Was there a particular person? Was this individual experience like what made you go down that route?
1: Yeah, great question. So i I went into medical school thinking that. Um, of all the specialties I could do, I was definitely not going to do psychiatry. And the reason for that is primarily because my mom is a psychiatrist, and I thought that's just too many psychiatrists in one family. But um, during my medical school training, my younger sister actually had a psychotic break and ended up uh, in my very unit where I was training. And so um, I really felt compelled to go into psychiatry because, of course, I saw firsthand the way that mental illness can really um, you know, devastate people. So I felt a real a calling and a sense of purpose. Ironically, when I was in my psychiatry training, um, I really wasn't interested in treating addiction, I uh, I had first of all I hadn't received much training in medical school or even in psychiatry residency around how to treat addiction. We were taught that wasn't a medical illness, that was a social problem or a moral problem, not the purview of healthcare providers. But as I was starting to see patients early in my career, I I realized that Um, they just weren't getting better, and that the underlying factor seemed to be ongoing substance use. So instead of pivoting away from addiction, I decided to pivot toward it and really um, learned as much as I could about how to treat addiction. I learned from my patients. I learned from colleagues who were doing that work. I read. I went to conferences. And what I discovered was that once I started Uh, treating my patients for their substance use problems in addition to their other mental health problems like bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, they got a whole lot better. Um, And their families got better and their colleagues got better. It was sort of this amazing ripple effect and I I got very excited about the work. And really for the last 20 plus years, I've specialized in treating patients who have some kind of addiction as well as a co-occurring mental health problem.
0: Okay, yeah. I know it's 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 very noble work and it's very interesting work. And like I now have a brother who lives in America. He's married in American now. And not, I'm not saying all the time, but he always harps on about the opioids issues in America. And whether it's the new president, whether it's a, a vice president or a wannabe president, it's always a massive, massive talking point in the media and how you're going to attack us or solve the issues and like personally i've i've never dealt with say some of the drugs associated with it but even over here in ireland i've heard and i've seen close friends use the likes of the drug like say codeine and i've watched it say affect their life their routines in a bad way and like in most of these cases it was gotten through maybe their parents medication or it was given to them illegally through purchasing But say, if you look at, say, the United States and in, say, cases in which they're prescribed, a lot of people in a big cause of debate in, like, all countries, but especially in the United States, is it's the education around doctors. So, like, do you feel that the doctors currently are educated enough or aware about the opioid epidemic that is currently taking place in the United States? Or do you think they're very much aware and on top of the situation?
1: Well, being aware and being on top of the situation are two different things. So you'd really have to have your head in the sand at this point not to be aware uh, that we're in the midst of a serious opioid epidemic, but we're still not on top of it. Um, So, you know, if you think about how many opioids are prescribed by American physicians, we prescribe approximately 30% of the world's opioids here in the United States even though we certainly don't constitute um, you know, 30% of the global population. Uh, we also prescribe at least four times as many opioids as any other country. Uh, including Canada and any country in Europe. We prescribe more than 20 times as many opioids as Japanese physicians do. And although opioid prescribing has decreased by about 30 to 40% since its peak in 2012, we're still prescribing way more opioids than we were in the 1990s. So the bottom line is we're headed in a better direction. There's more awareness among healthcare providers around the opioid epidemic, but we're still grappling with and in disagreement about what to do about it.
0: And like with that topic, as you finished off there, you said you're in kind of disagreement as to how to approach and how to deal with this. And like whether you read different articles, the vast majority of people who study it or do research on it, they say that up to or even over a quarter of the people who are on opioids end up misusing them in some harmful way or in a way they weren't advised initially. And like, why do you think that is? Do you think that it's the actual understanding of their condition, whether it's an anxiety related thing, whether it's depression, whether it's a physical disability? Like, why do you think so many people are such a large per- uh, sorry, percentage of people end up abusing or misusing the medication that's given to them in the first place?
1: So what Purdue Pharma would want you to think, and what unfortunately a lot of people still believe, is that there are just some bad actors out there and they're manipulating their doctors and the healthcare system to get the opioids because they are already addicted and they're kind of ruining it for the quote-unquote good patients. And although it's certainly true that there are people who already have opioid addiction and try to get pills from doctors and never were seeking um, any kind of bona fide health care treatment... it's also very true that you can be a person with no history of addiction, no family history of addiction. You can have a serious medical illness, including severe pain, go to your doctor seeking help, get an opioid from that doctor, and end up addicted to opioids. And the reason for that, Richie, is really simple opioids are addictive. So, like, we don't really need to make up a whole lot of other. Reasons, there certainly are other reasons. There are lots of risk factors for addiction. We know there's a genetic component, about 50 to 60% of the risk of getting addicted is inherited. So if you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction, you yourself are at increased risk to become addicted. Poverty is a risk factor, Multigenerational trauma is a risk factor, co-occurring mental illness is a risk factor. But another really important risk factor that people forget is simple access to the drug. So if you go to see a doctor who's really freewheeling with their prescription pad and you end up taking opioids every day for a pain condition, you can very quickly build up tolerance and dependence to where it's hard to stop. Not only that, you feel like you're medicating your pain, but really opioids taken daily long-term can make pain worse because they change the pain threshold. So people can get into a really vicious cycle where they feel they're medicating their pain. They do get relief from the opioid when they take uh, when they take it, they do get relief of their pain, but they're really medicating withdrawal from the last dose and not the underlying pain condition. And eventually people end up on very high doses. Then all of a sudden their doctor's reluctant to prescribe it, but they don't feel they can get off because of the debilitating opioid withdrawal. So then they seek out illicit sources like heroin or illicit pills or even fentanyl. So it's a gradual process, but no one is immune, Richie, and I think that's the really important message. These substances simply are addictive.
0: It's probably an overlooked point when a lot of people make off-the-cuff remarks on it. And like in, say, your book, one of the the clear messages is that you want to get the message across that Basically, there's a negative view on addiction by people who find themselves addicted, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drug related or anything else. But you're basically one of your things you'd like to grow more awareness towards is that people should be more aware of this and they should be if they're suffering from a drug related issue or an overdependence on an opioid or even more class A type things like cocaine or whatever. They should feel comfortable to actually ask for help and extend their arm to experts or friends or family. And I'm just wondering, why are so many people, when it's, say, an reliance on, say, an opioid or, say, if it's to do with something like heroin or even cocaine, why are so many people not willing to accept that they actually have a problem in the first place?
1: One of the symptoms of addiction is a phenomenon called denial. And denial is the situation wherein when people are deeply in their addiction, they literally cannot see cause and effect. Another way of saying that is they really do not attribute their very serious life problems to the drug that they are taking. And that's because addictive substances can hijack our brains. They can hijack our frontal lobe. Our frontal lobe is the part of our brain that we use to plan for future consequences, to narrate our experience, to delay gratification. People lose that capacity when they're in the throes of an addiction, which is why it's so important to give people the opportunity to be off of their drug for a period of time, usually the, a minimum of about four weeks, so that they can look back and see the connection between their drug use and the dire consequences as a result of their drug use. So, so I think it's, you know, it's really important to recognize that when people are in their addiction cycle, they really can't clearly see the impact of their addiction on their life. Now, having said that, There are also people who really are able to see what their addiction is doing to their lives and the people around them, and yet still can't stop. So insight is not the only factor. There are other factors too, which have to do with the drug just becomes the best way that that person can think of to cope with what's going on in their life. They don't have other tools. And so part of helping people stop using addictive drugs, is to give them other adaptive coping strategies and also other sources of dopamine, right? So Freud talked about love, work, and play as being central to a life worth living. And a lot of people who use drugs don't have any of those things. They don't have love, they don't have work, and they don't have play. So part of our job as a society is to make sure that people have access to alternative sources of dopamine.
0: Okay, and would you find now like i'm I'm speaking on behalf of the Irish public here we've just gone into a a six week lockdown in which you know pretty much all shops are closed. there's not really many alternatives apart from sitting at home or going for the odd walk, even though the weather is quite quite poor, and like obviously it's the same all around the world. there's restrictions everywhere you look, but with that, there's obviously a tendency like I'm just thinking of people within Ireland some people would go right if I can't do much I might go back to smoking cigarettes or having a bit more alcohol or doing a bit more drugs and I've noticed or even heard of people who have gone back to those traits that when normality was there it was never a case it was never a case they would take that much so do you find that circumstance obviously does play a role but that the actual education that there is alternatives there is ways to Get that rush, get that benefit in your brain. Do you think that's the root of the problem where certain things, whether it's, you know, the health side of it, whether it's fitness side of it, whether it's other hobbies or other ways to deal with it, that's really what the main focus should be to prevent people, as I said, using the crutch, which is ultimately In the shape of a drug or alcohol or whatever it may be
1: so all around the world the data are showing that people are drinking more they're smoking more they're using more drugs since the pandemic and sheltering in place started Um, They're also eating more. So, there's been, you know, on average a 20 pound weight gain here in the United States uh, by some uh, studies because people are sitting at home, they can't go out, and they're just trying to find a way to comfort themselves. But, Richie, I think you're really right. We have got to get more creative around how we get our dopamine and soothe ourselves because the truth is that. You know, potato chips and nicotine and alcohol, they definitely work well for a while, but they ultimately stop working because the brain adapts to those high levels of dopamine. Not only that, When we ingest high dopamine substances, we essentially put ourselves into a clinical depression because we deplete our own sources of dopamine. So the trick really is to avoid those substances and find other ways of engaging in the world, even if the world is a very locked down and limited place. I'm coming out with a new book next year called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age Mm -hmm. of Indulgence. This is going to be published by Dutton Penguin Random House in August 2021. And the book is all about how we can find alternative sources of dopamine and why it's so important, based on what we know about the neuroscience of addiction, to avoid high dopamine drugs, whether it's potato chips or chocolate or our smartphones.
0: And like, obviously, there must have been an extensive study done while writing that. And I'm sure the circumstances we've all faced over the last several months that's kind of limited the options we have, but like straight off the bat, is there anything? And as you even said there, if it's not in the form of alcohol or drugs, social media is always, you know, in your pocket. It's always an arm's reach away in the shape of a phone. Like, is there any even advice or tips you'd give? Cause there'd be a lot of people listening to this that, you know, may or may not have issues with alcoholism or, might never have touched a drug in their life, but then they look at their average time on a phone, it's 10 hours a day. Like, would you have any tips or advice how to, you know, stay active and stay away from those type of, you know, addiction habits?
1: Yeah, so, you know, let me just validate that we're all struggling with compulsive overconsumption, especially during quarantine. Again, whether your drug of choice is alcohol or potato chips or chocolate or League of Legends, um, you know, mm-hmm. we're all finding ourselves sort of caught up in it. So, my recommendation is actually the same recommendation I give people who are addicted to a drug. Um, so, even if you're not addicted, I, I recommend that you do what I advise my patients to do. And by the way, I've taken this advice myself in my own life with my own small behavioral problems of compulsive overconsumption, which I talk about in my book. But what I basically recommend is that you take a break from your drug of choice. How long? I recommend four weeks Four weeks is just about the minimum amount of time you need to reset the brain's reward pathways and to start making your own dopamine again. It's what I see in clinical practice is the amount of time that's needed, and it's what I see also um, in the literature to support that, the imaging studies. So what happens in the first two weeks of taking that break from whatever your drug is, uh, is people experience withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal are anxiety, insomnia, dysphoria, and irritability. But if you can just get through those first two weeks of compulsive craving and wanting to use your drug, then what you'll find is your mind begins to expand, your mood improves, your sleep improves, and very importantly, you begin to see just how addicted you were, which again is hard to see when we're in our addiction. Then when you get to four weeks, many people are really amazed at how much better they feel just by taking a break from eating candy or just from taking a break from, you know, their compulsively overused video game that they got caught up in or just from taking a break from Facebook or from, you know, their favorite compulsively watched news channel. And then what you do at that four-week mark, and it's really good if you can do this with a friend or a loved one and talk it through, you kind of... Make a plan for how you're going to go back to using, but this time put barriers in place so that you're not using in the same compulsive, overconsumptive way that you were before. And these barriers can take many forms. They can be chronological. They can be physical. They can be categorical. So you can say, I'm only going to use X number of hours per day, or I'm never going to use past 8 p.m. Those would be time barriers. Or you could say, um, I'm never going to bring my phone into my bedroom. So that would be a physical barrier. Or I'm going to put my game console in the garage where it's cold and dark so it's not as inviting. Those are physical barriers. Or I'm just not going to keep potato chips in the house, right? Or I'm not going to keep alcohol Mm. in the house. I'm only going to have alcohol when I'm out with friends wearing masks of course. And then of course, the categorical barriers are where you put your trigger substances in a category and you say to yourself, you know what? I really can't eat potato chips without eating about four bags. So I'm just not going to eat potato chips at all anymore. I'm going to put them in my forbidden category. And I'm going to add to that really any Junk food because I find as soon as I start eating cookies, I want those potato chips. So, this is the type of thing that we need to do. And then you set out on an experiment and you try it out and you see if you're able to moderate. And you, it's really important to keep track. So, you want to write down what you're using. Does that answer your question, Richie? A kind of a practical guide? I really talk about this at length in my forthcoming book, Dopamine Nation.
0: Yeah, no, that absolutely extensively covers it and was exactly what I was looking for. So, thank you for that.
1: You're welcome. And
0: like, even what struck home there with me was, you know, this is, say, the second lockdown we've we've had. And as I'm sure you're aware, it can be relatable. A lot of people, their jobs, their routines, whether it was fitness-related or sports-related, all that got taken away. And you were spending a lot more time with yourself, your thoughts, as opposed to being out and about, whether it was with college work, whether it was with friends, whatever. It's found that I found myself that I was very much really diligent with my phone use. I was always like, right, no more than two hours a day. I know it's probably more than I should, but two hours was a good limit. And then once the lockdown came in, I found it being three, four, sometimes five hours, which was what I didn't want. And once that got out of control, you spoke there about the barriers where I went, right, well, there is apps, there is settings I can put on my phone. So simply by putting a a 45 minute limit uh, limit on my Instagram usage suddenly it just shot way below 2 hours because I still had the option there to you know extend the limit because I'd get a notification on my phone but the fact that that barrier kept coming up it would constantly remind me of why I wanted to do it as opposed to there being no resistance and no barrier and that kind of leads me on to the next topic and obviously you featured in the social media documentary, which has you know gotten very good reviews, it's raised awareness to such a topical debate that's going on worldwide about social media, the positive and negative effects it has, and like when I asked a lot of people to send on their questions, a lot of people in their twenties, a lot of people even younger than that, were saying that since lockdowns come in, they found that their usage has just skyrocketed. Some people have even admitted to having their phone usage of 10 plus hours a day. And I know it might kind of cross back to what you were saying about finding distractions, why not to take drugs or not to use alcohol or something like that. But a lot of people were asking, you know, how can you limit social media usage during these times of isolation when it's just so kind of tough to resist the, to resist the temptation to actually just to look at your phone? Because as I said, it's more often not the closest thing to you.
1: So again, I recommend simple practical tips that involve setting limits on the number of hours, keeping track actually of what you're doing, because when we don't keep track, it's very easy to convince ourselves that we're using social media or our phones less than we really are. I really recommend that you take one day per week where you don't go on the phone or on social media at all. So this can be really hard because, you know, what happens? is we essentially create a mental construct of our phones in our brains. And we always know where that phone is. It's like become a part of us. Yeah. And so we have to spend a whole day where we're not touching it and we're not tapping it and we're not swiping. It feels actually really scary and anxiety provoking. But I bet if you try that, what you'll find is about 12 hours into the day, you're kind of starting to relax and you're able to not think of it every five minutes. And again, it's just really important to do that, to sort of reset the brain so that you don't have the construct of the phone occupying so much of your frontal lobe and you're able to think about and do other things. If there's a particular app that's like poison for you that once you start, you're just down a rabbit hole, again, that's the app that I would suggest maybe you're getting addicted to. And that one you would want to delete for a whole month and not use it so that you can kind of get your brain back to an equilibrium. And just so people know, the the symptoms of addiction can be remembered by the three Cs. The first C stands for control. So out of control use. I just planned to be on social media for an hour, and three hours later, I was still tapping and swiping. That's one symptom of addiction. The other is compulsive use. I don't even want to use, but I'm still using. So there's that level of automaticity and a whole lot of my brain real estate taken up by thinking about using. That's compulsive use. The last one, the last C is continued use to spike consequences. So even though being on my phone or really using any drug is getting is interfering with the time I spend with my children or the time I spend with my, uh, my spouse or the time I spend doing my work or cutting into my sleep. Those are serious consequences. So if you notice any of that happening with your engagement with your device no matter what you're using on the device, you want to think about taking a month break. And then in terms of once you get it under control, I still recommend one day a week where you just say, I'm not going to touch it today. I'm going to try to go through the whole day. And then, you know, you distract yourself with other things. You know, we often think about replacing one drug with another. It's like, okay, I'm not going to smoke pot, but I'll play video games. Or, you know, I'm not going to play video games, but I'm going to drink beer. But the truth of the matter is that's not that effective a long-term strategy, because whenever we're using addictive substances, there can be something called crossover addiction. So we can very quickly develop tolerance to another drug. I recommend instead that you do something that's effortful and hard, like something creative. Make something. Or exercise is effortful and hard and associated with a lot of dopamine. Go out and move your body or engage in prayer or meditation or some other spiritual practice, which we know lights up regions of the brain that are very healthy for us. So, those are the types of suggestions I would have.
0: Okay. And like I, I, th- I actually had a, an author on, I don't know if you've heard of him before, Adam Alter. And he wrote a book called Irresistible and he was stating that like people nowadays who would say have a huge reliance on their phones, they'll end up spending 12, 13 years of their lives actually just staring at a phone. And like a lot of people who sent in some of the questions or some of the topics is like a lot of people would say be young. A lot of people would be just finished college or just starting work. And they're kind of saying, like, what are the actual negative effects? Is it very much mental? Is it to do with communication? Does it lead in and spill over into your work? Or as you said, affect your sleep? Like whether it's you personally dealing with people or hearing from others, like what were some of the, the negative effects that you could kind of direct back to social media usage gone too far, so to say.
1: Well, I mean, I, you know, I see in my clinical practice people who are actually seriously addicted, who come in and who are morbidly depressed and even suicidal because they cannot stop uh, their behavioral or process addiction, whether it's video games or online pornography, online gambling, or social media. It's often a combination of many of those things. So this is serious. I mean, this is really a drug. You know, these devices and apps are designed to keep you engaged. Um, You know, there's the promise of ever greater rewards with ongoing engagement, the flashing lights, the bottomless bowls. So they're designed that way. And you as a consumer have to really be aware that, um, they're made to get you hooked. And that once you get hooked, it's really hard to see that you are hooked. And the only way to really get clarity on that, again, is to take a break from it and actually see how it was affecting your, the way you feel, okay, so your mood, but as well as affecting what you are actually doing with your life. I mean, if you think about spending that many hours a day consuming social media or video games or pornography, you know, and if those days turn into months, turn into years, you're going to look back and say, What did I do with my life? So, you don't want to do that. You want to, you know, really change it up and dive into the real world, the people around you, the natural world, the work that you've been given. I mean, these are, it's not that this is easy to do, but it's so worth the effort.
0: Yeah. No, I completely agree. And as you referred to there, that it is very much whether it's gambling related or, social media like it is it is geared towards just like a drug it is geared towards you staying on it for as long as possible or using it time and time again and as you said there like say you take instagram for example there's very little there on that where it's like a definitive end and as i said to refer back to the book i read irresistible he spoke about how there was no stopping cues. so back A long time ago, when TV had ads, you had weekly series rather than just Netflix, everything at the click of a finger and you could binge watch. There was kind of stopping cues that meant, okay, this is over. Now I need to go on to my next task during the day. So whether it's looking at Netflix, you can watch Breaking Bad start to finish so you can complete it over four or five days as opposed to it taking weeks if not months back several years ago if you look at instagram you look at your friends you can go through all their posts you can go through their stories you can then explore what other people are doing there's a bottomless pit of your like basically just screaming out for your attention and your kind of eyes just to be kept glued on it so that's one of the big things especially with facebook especially with instagram that means that people can just get sucked into a deep deep hole for an hour, 2 hours, 3 hours and before they know it like you said they're looking back on where did that time go? why was i doing that? And right. do you see like a world in which like you look at even attention spans 15 20 years ago were 12 13 seconds now it's down to 8 seconds according to studies like do you see that wave like people it feels like we 're swimming against the tide a little bit. Do you see see that changing, or do you just still kind of feel that technology and social media and the addiction that comes with it is still got a mountain to climb, and it could potentially even get worse before it starts to get a bit better
1: Oh boy, I think we 're in for struggling with this problem for the next century at least I, I think we 're only now just beginning to recognize the dark side of this technology and the way that we're all getting caught up in it in a way that's not beneficial. Let me emphasize there are so many wonderful things about the technology, including social media and the way that can connect people who, by virtue of geography, disability, or other life constraints, otherwise wouldn't be able to be connected. The simple fact that you and I can talk like this across the ocean is amazing, right? But it's really important to begin to have a very active discussion about the dark side of the technology and the way that it really can, again, hijack our our brains and get us addicted. You know, sometimes people will ask me, well, I don't really believe that people can get addicted to social media or pornography or gambling because it's not like a drug. And all I can say to them is, in my clinical practice, the natural history of addiction to those behaviors is identical to the natural history of addiction to drugs and alcohol. People start out using for fun or to solve a problem. Often the problem is something like anxiety, depression, insomnia, boredom. But whatever the reason, they go from occasional use to daily use. Then when they're using daily, they build up tolerance. They need more and more of the drug to get the same effect. They need a more potent form to get the same effect. This is going up in the levels in your video game, for example, or just spending more time uh, on, on social media. Uh, and then eventually they get to a point where when they try to cut back or stop, they go into withdrawal. And so, you know, it really is the, these devices and these um, these apps really are addictive. And I think that's the part that people are only just beginning to recognize. Mm. So
0: like, would you even, as you were saying there, like that four week challenge, especially now, like I'm, I'm thinking there'll be a large part of listeners here that will be irish like now would maybe be a good time considering you're not missing out on people going on holidays people living their their highlight life so to speak now if someone was like oh i'm on twitter all the time or instagram or whatever do you feel like now could be an ideal time for them to test that to see after the two weeks of withdrawal to try push on that to see like how bad maybe their issue could be uh, deep down
1: Yes, Richie, I agree. It's actually a wonderful opportunity to try a period of abstinence. Because people aren't going out to bars and to parties, it's that much easier to stop. The national and international data show that more people are getting into addiction treatment since sheltering in place and quarantine and the pandemic started because they don't have the same access to their drug of choice. So clearly what we're seeing here through this disruption is an opportunity for good things as well, not just bad things. So I absolutely agree with you, whether you're already severely addicted or just struggling with the same kind of compulsive overconsumption that we're all struggling with, now is a golden chance to try a little bit of abstinence from your drug of choice. And again, I want to emphasize this isn't abstinence for a lifetime, and it doesn't mean throwing away your phone completely, although you could try that too. Uh, It means really being thoughtful about what are the apps that get you hooked and abstaining from those for four weeks to kind of reassess the role that they play in your life. And if you do decide after four weeks to reintegrate them, then how you want that to look and what barriers you can put in place to keep you on track.
0: Yeah. No, well said. And Anna, just lastly, what I normally do on the podcast is I just do a quick fire round. It's just a harmless few quick fire questions. Um, nothing too incriminating. Sure. and don't worry. And yeah, that will see us through to the end. So if it's okay, I'll uh, bang out a few here and then let you go. Sure. Okay. So your favorite film of all time? Oh
1: My favorite film of all time? Um, Galaxy Quest.
0: Okay. And what is your ideal breakfast?
1: Two eggs on toast.
0: Classical, to be fair. Your favorite song of all time?
1: Oh, gosh, I have so many favorite songs. Um, I'm pretty unoriginal when it comes to music. um, So probably my favorite song is Hallelujah. Okay.
0: And what fashion trend do you just not get or understand?
1: Uh, Middle-aged women wearing sleeveless dresses. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, okay. And the worst piece of advice you hear in your line of work?
1: Um, gosh, that's a good one. Let me think. Take more drugs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And lastly, Anna, um, sum yourself up in three words.
1: Sum yourself up in three words. Good Lord. Yeah. Um Let's see. God, how, how to do that without like coming off as either a braggart or completely neurotic. That's yeah. the question. No, it's very tough.
0: It is very tough. A lot of people struggle with this one.
1: Uh, um, let's see. Tall. <laughs> <laughs> um, impulsive. Um, and fair.
0: Okay. Well, well said. So, Anna, that more or less wraps it up on our end so first and foremost I want to say thank you very much for coming on and secondly if you'd like just to talk a tiny bit about you said that upcoming book is is in the works if you want to d- delve a little bit into that if you'd like just for any is- listeners who may be interested in that
1: Sure. So thanks for the opportunity. It is, again, it's called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. It's coming out in August 2021, published by Dutton Penguin Random House. It is available for pre-order on Amazon now. It doesn't have the real cover on it, um, but it will soon. And I'm really, really excited about it because it's sort of an amalgamation of My thinking on the problem of compulsive overconsumption and the problem of living in a world where we're struggling not with scarcity, but really with overabundance and how we can navigate this world when uh, when this is really unprecedented in the history of humankind. So it includes, you know, some memoir stuff like my own compulsive addiction to romance novels, as well as a lot of patient stories and how they got into recovery. These are really stories of courage and redemption. And lots of basic neuroscience sort of simplified down to simple metaphors about how the brain works and how we get addicted and how we can overcome it. So I'm really excited about it. It's written for a general lay audience. Um, It's not written for people with addiction. It's really written for average folks who are just struggling like I am. Uh, with compulsive overconsumption
0: okay perfect well i'll leave all the links attached so anyone interested in any of the work i'll make sure to leave the links with the podcast but yeah as i said anna very fascinating chat really enjoyed us and as i said thanks a million for coming on to talk and hopefully all the listeners can gain something from this
1: super well richie it was really nice to talk to you thank you so much for having me
0: no worries we listen have a good day Anna. and thanks again
1: bye-bye